This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with a global airline loyalty industry leader. In the news, an alleged export control violation involving Russia, a hydrogen-powered regional airliner takes flight, important JetBlue court cases, and an FAA system problem impacts check rides. We also have an Australia news desk report from Avalon and a visit to an LL MRO shop. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 740 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first Rob Mark, contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation. That's part of the Aviation Week group. He's a business jet pilot, a CFI. He spent some time as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes a Jetwine blog. Well, good evening to everybody across the world, and especially to our guest ringing in from Kuala Lumpur. And he, everyone loved my joke about the fact that I love those little koala bears. Until I found out that's not where they're from. No, well, we, I don't know about love the joke, but we laughed anyway. Yeah, but you were laughing at me, I think. Probably. <laughs> yeah, okay. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Uh, looking forward to um, speaking to our guest from the future. And, you know, one of those time things we get to do. And and looking forward to hearing the stories of our co-host who's taking off tonight, but learning to do something that I get to deal with on a regular basis, and that's fly helicopters. That's right. That's what Max Trescott is doing, getting a helicopter lesson. And uh, so we'll, yeah, love to hear about how that went next time. But we also have with us our main man, Micah. Well, being that we were talking about Trescott not being here and he's spinning around somewhere, you figure you'd find another spinning guest host. So here I am from Portland, Maine. Oh, you guys are in fine form tonight. All right. Our guest this episode is Mark Ross-Smith. He's an award-winning global airline loyalty industry leader. He's an author. He's founder of the industry news site Travel Data Daily, and he's the CEO of StatusMatch.com, which helps switch your loyalty tier status to a new airline or hotel. Now, Mark has 20 years uh, of experience leading loyalty programs in telecoms and travel, most recently at Malaysian Airlines. Uh, Mark has published dozens of papers and articles on airline loyalty. He's also a frequent speaker at conferences and other events. So, Mark, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Hello from the future. Um, very <laughs> generous introduction. Thank you. Looking forward to the interesting conversations today. Terrific. Coming up, we're going to be talking about airline loyalty programs. But first, we've got some aviation news from the past week. Everyone ready? Ready from the Midwest. And I'm mainly ready. Ready from the South. First item comes from CNN. Two Americans arrested for allegedly sending aviation technology to Russia. Yeah, this was kind of sort of this sideline story that sort of caught my eye. Two gentlemen from Kansas, and their company is called Can Russ. Real creative there. 
were caught by the Justice Department's task force currently, Klepto Capture, another creative federal justice name. Um, and they were discovering that they um, did 30 different reasons for indictments um, for sanctioned supporters of the Kremlin and Russian military, according to the Justice Department. So they're shipping airplane parts, which you're not supposed to do, and you're especially not supposed to do it to Russia. And they were doing it in sort of clandestine ways to uh, make a profit. But like all sanctioned people, they get watched quicker and looks like the Justice Department picked these guys up. Now, this is, you know, alleged. It's always alleged because they're not uh, convicted yet. But the prosecutors say that these two uh, gentlemen, they concealed who their clients were. They lied about how much the products cost. They were paid through foreign bank accounts. And the uh, Justice Department says all this was to circumvent U.S. sanctions against Russia. Some clever naming, like you say, David, Can Rust Trading Company. I mean, yeah, that's that's not too creative. But I really love the uh, klepto capture name for the Justice Department task force. Now, they've been u- working for about a year uh, fighting money laundering and uh, people who are evading sanctions that uh, support the Russian government. So far, they, uh, they have over 30 indictments against sanctioned supporters of the Kremlin and the Russian military. So serious charge probably won't end well for for these two individuals. Uh, Robertson, who was a commercial pilot, who was one of the um, accused in this, um, was caught allegedly um, telling a Russian client that things are complicated in the USA and that invoices needed to be less than $50,000 because there were to be more paperwork and and visibility, adding that this was not a right time for either. A shipment to a Russian client was later sent through Laos, the prosecutors say. So they definitely were trying to work the system, keeping a low keeping a low profile, which probably made it even a higher profile. So um, interesting to see what will happen if we're going to see a lot more of this going forward um, as the war in Ukraine has continued on beyond a year. Well, you know, why would the Russians want a product that was shipped through Laos? I mean, wouldn't that make that a lousy product? (laughs) Here we go. It started already. All right. So, yeah, and this also ought to be a warning, I would think, to uh, others who may be out there trying to circumvent the the sanction that the U.S. government is is watching for that. All right, let's go on to our next story. This is from... uh, KIMATV.com. First hydrogen-powered airplane takes flight in Moses Lake. This is something from Universal Hydrogen. They developed this plane. It's nicknamed Lightning McLean. But we have a lot of creative naming going on this episode. I think the Candrus people could have used the the help of these guys. Yeah, yeah. So this is a 40-passenger regional airliner. They flew for 15 minutes, and they're using hydrogen fuel cell propulsion. The fuel cell or a fuel cell electric powertrain replaces the existing turboprop engines. But apparently a successful test, if only for 15 minutes. Yeah, I thought this was a sizable aircraft. Go ahead. I said, I thought this was great. And as David was saying, yeah, it's, a, it's an ATR-72. So it's, you know, a standard aircraft that they have re-engineered to work uh, on hydrogen. But my question 
comes up from this, based on some of the discussions from last week's show, is I wish they would have said where that hydrogen came from. Was it created through electrolysis with electricity that was being generated uh, carbon-free, or was it stripped from natural gas? Because if it's stripped from natural gas, so, I mean, great that they did it, but it's not doing anything for uh, the climate. They're also um, using these modular hydrogen capsules, they're calling them, uh, that are placed in, in the rear of the fuselage. And they do say in partial answer to your, uh, your, your issue, Micah, they say they're transported from green hydrogen production sites, but I don't know what green hydrogen production sites means exactly. But they're transported from those sites to the airport in these capsules that are loaded directly into the aircraft. And they say that uh, all of that uses the existing intermodal freight network and cargo handling equipment. So nothing special required there. But if you look on the Universal Hydrogen website, uh, they, they have some, well, some artwork that shows different concepts and these, uh, these modules, these containers of hydrogen inserted into the aircraft. And the thing that strikes me right off is that the volume required for the hydrogen fuel is a significant portion of the total volume of the fuselage. Uh, from It looks like from a third to even a, a little bit more. You, you, you still got to fit passengers in uh, and, and cargo. And so I think we still have a, a problem, an issue here in terms of the volume of, uh, of fuel required if you're going hydrogen. Yeah, it was discussed again last week, and uh, and I'm glad that he brought it up because hydrogen is a great fuel, but it's not energy dense, and that's part of the problem. Well, another point I I wanted to make about this is that the uh, the company that that seems to hold the majority of the orders. I'm just looking for the name. Was it Connect or Connections? Connect Airlines uh, in uh, Australia, I believe. They're saying that this is going to be. Uh, up and running uh, in in less than two years, which I'm a little surprised at, uh, considering where we are on the issues we just talked about in terms of uh, hydrogen pr- production. But uh, uh, we'll see. They have a flight test campaign underway now, and they expect that to run through 2025. And like you say, Rob, they're expecting uh, entry into passenger service. This is for ATR-72 aircraft. Um, that same year, 2025, um, there'll be aircraft converted to run on hydrogen. Um, don't know who's producing the fuel cells uh, or the you know the electric part of the powertrain. That's um, uh, pretty aggressive, I think. Yeah, I remember back uh, I don't know some 10 years ago when we had the uh, the person who was doing terra, creating terrafugia, the flying car on the air, and that was going to be in the air in two years as well. And uh, anyway. All these things are just on the horizon, it, it seems. Um, and not to sound overly pessimistic, I think we all, you know, hope for a, a future that's, yeah, it's that's different. But there's just so many uh, issues there. Uh, Mark, are you seeing any kind of uh, sentiment um, in the in the circles that you travel in for, you know, these kinds of technologies, sustainable aviation fuel or hydrogen power or things like that? Or are people talking about these things out there? Uh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I'm pretty firmly in the loyalty part of the um, travel industry. And there's a lot of talk about creating a green loyalty program. 
or a green loyalty tier for an airline. You know, we've seen uh, Qantas have launched a green loyalty initiative in that program and Etihad as well. They've launched um, green program. Uh, Lufthansa, you might have seen, I think a few weeks ago, launched green fares where the airfares are somewhere between 20 and 100% more than the typical fare, but it's branded green. It's got a nice green logo on it and you earn some extra tier miles when you fly. So there's there's a few drivers there getting people to embrace it. I think I think I mean I mean I'm in Southeast Asia, which typically I think is one of the last parts of the world that would embrace this kind of stuff because fuel's cheaper. People are very conscious of it. I think there's a bit of a step between where we are now in terms of passengers fully embracing, you know, carbon offsets and all this kind of stuff, uh, and where we are. Uh, so I think there's going to have to be some baby steps to get there. I don't think people are willing to pay 10 times for their flight for full SAF on every flight kind of thing. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But in the meantime, you know, my personal thought is, you know, we're going to have to create new engines, new power plants, new, new ways to fly, um, you know, new technologies that zoom us through the sky. Maybe that's the easier way um, that people might, you know, get excited about because apparently all these companies say it's coming in two years. So whatever we create next is coming in two years. It's okay. <laughs> yes. But like you say, I mean, this represents so many fundamental changes on so many different levels for so many different people and organizations that to change on a very short notice just seems kind of impractical. Too many things have to happen. Too many things, people have to be bought in. Um, the economics has to work for everybody eventually. Otherwise, you know, the motivations is kind of um, not, you know, not really sustainable, I think. So, yeah, I- interesting times for sure. All right, speaking of interesting times, uh, this is from the Washington Post. Uh, JetBlue is at the center of two cases that could remake the industry. Uh, Rob, what are the two cases that are um, spoken of in this article? Uh, the the uh, alliance, the Northeast Alliance uh, deal with uh, American that's been pending for a long time, uh, and uh, and of course uh, some of the uh, people that are not in favor of it say that it's really just a a merger with American uh, because they're going to share uh, revenue and that sort of thing. Uh, but the other is the um, possible merger of JetBlue with uh, Spirit, and uh, that of course was. Uh, you know, spurred on by uh, Frontier's uh, being, I don't know, too many S words. I was going to say Frontier being spurned uh, uh, by the JetBlue, I'm sorry, by the Spirit board uh, and people saying, no, no, this isn't going to work. It's going to reduce competition and uh, it's going to have bad uh, bad outcomes for the, uh, the consumer. So uh, these are some pretty high-profile uh, problems because there are not that many airlines left in the U.S. that can possibly merge. Many people think this, you know, if this goes through, that this would be the last last merger uh, we're we're likely to see. Not not until American buys United, yeah, and Delta. I or think that Delta buys, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. That's that that's probably unlikely. United Delta American. Yeah, I, I, it's UAD. United United American Delta. I think that's the the ultimate, otherwise known as U.S. Air. 
Well, that that name is free now. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny the these two JetBlue situations that are going on. First, the Northeast Airlines with American, and then this, the Justice Department issue and the possible merger with Spirit. It just doesn't fit for me when I think of JetBlue. I heard an interview with David Nealman the other day, and, uh, and he was talking about how when he founded JetBlue, he was thinking about coming up with a, a high-quality service airline at reasonable prices to undercut the majors. And JetBlue always prided itself on its great service. Now, American recently has not necessarily prided itself on that. And Spirit, an ultra-low cost carrier, or as others might call it, an ultra-low service carrier, also does not necessarily pride itself on that. So how these three organizations could merge or how JetBlue would want to get them involved with that is really kind of frightening. And when the American Northeast Alliance thing happened, people were going to book themselves on JetBlue and they might actually end up on an American flight. And that, to me, would be awful, not if I didn't know about it, because when I book myself on JetBlue, I want that JetBlue service. I don't want to sit on an American flight because that service is going to be very different. Not bad, but very different. And I would normally think I would be paying less for that, but I wouldn't be if the Northeast Alliance goes into effect. And I think the Justice Department is looking at those things as well. Well, we've talked about the you know the culture issues when two airlines uh, merge, uh, which would, I think, be the case with JetBlue and, and Spirit. But I, I'm wondering, since we have Mark here, I'm wondering about you know, merging loyalty systems. That doesn't seem like that would be something that would be uh, easy to pull off. Agree. Uh, it's going to be tough, especially with JetBlue and Spirit, for exactly the reasons that you know we're talking about here. If we look at the typical person who would be engaged in someone like the Free Spirit Loyalty Program or Frontier, you know, similar demographic, um, versus the type of highly engaged fly with, say, JetBlue American, there's a totally different profile of customer, right? And, you know, if you go somehow merging these programs together, like what, what does that look like? Because you suddenly got two very different demographics of folks that you've got to cater towards from a loyalty perspective on top of the product perspective in the air, right? Right. So um, super challenging. I am obviously following this with great interest. Um, these airlines are some of our clients as well. So we're definitely following it. Mark, I, a follow-on question to that. Um, in your experience, has there ever been a really successful merger that is, did a really successful merger as far as the loyalty programs go? Like it was like a, a one-to-one match or whatever? Uh, good question. You put me on the spot here. <laughs> um, I want to say American and USA. I, I want to say that just because USA, they were, USA always were um, monetizing the loyalty program really well, right? And that sort of flowed over into the new American, right? Um, to the point where, and we can talk about this later, but, you know, Americans' loyalty program is, is worth somewhere between 20 and $30 billion today. The airline itself is only worth 10 as a whole as the whole group. So... You know, are, are these airlines airlines anymore, or are they marketing companies? Are they loyalty programs that have an operational division? Yes, That's a good question. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, and, and we'll get I, into that. And I was going to ask, um, when I think about it from my own experience, when uh, United and Continental merged, I was a United One Pass member with with many, many, many miles, and that merger took place. And it at the time, I don't. It's changed. United 
Mileage Plus is a completely different program. But at the time that it merged, it seemed pretty fair. And then, you know, United, cha- as loyalty programs do, changed. But they, they changed what it what it once was. But, uh, I mean, I'm sure you how – do, how do you feel about that one? Did, did that one work? It seemed to work for me as a consumer. I don't live in the U.S., so I'm not as familiar with that one okay. before my time as well. Um, but I can speak to some other ones where, for example – not mergers, but where the airline sort of fizzles out or bankruptcy, you know, think about Jet Airways in India where the loyalty program continued to survive even after the airline Air Berlin, same deal. Um, When Air Berlin, they were in one world and when they sort of left the world, um, you know, there was a lot of status matching around airlines trying to pick up those customers and quite quickly. And so, you know, you, you might be losing your points, but at least you keep your status for a year or so with another airline. So there's those consolation prizes around the world. So I think, I think this is potentially the biggest merger of the time and, you know, with JetBlue getting aggressive. So I think all eyes are on what they do next um, in terms of loyalty, because in the last three years, loyalty is really sort of uh, you know, had the spotlight shine on it uh, in the world. And, you know, we're starting to see the economics behind how these things work. Analysts are waking up, CEOs are waking up and going, hey, there's a lot of value here. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if part of the acquisition is is the value in the loyalty program. Sure. Okay, we're going to dive into that um, in some detail. But just before we do one more uh, one more item from the news and this is from Flying Magazine. Check rides grind to a halt when the IACRA system coughs. Rob, do you, is there a way to pronounce that acronym? IACRA. IACRA, the IACRA system. It's basically the online method that uh, uh, instructors of for all certificates, uh, not just pilots, but uh, A&P mechanics, uh, you know, and other... Uh, Anybody that uh, can gain an airman certificate uh, must go through the IACRA system uh, because it allows the instructor and the student uh, and the feds to speak a common language and get all the paperwork uh, correct long before a student shows up at the airport or the uh, uh, the hangar or whatever for uh, for their uh, their practical test. And uh, it, it kind of uh, took a nosedive the way that uh, the NOTAM system did uh, a month or so ago. Um, it just stopped working. And what that means is that the uh, testing system in the United States for mostly pilot certificates, which was already behind uh, the game anyway because there are not enough uh, uh, designated pilot examiners, uh, was thrown even into a even a busier uh, mess, or a, I should say, a, a worse mess, because uh, uh, people would show up for their their practical tests, and uh, when the examiner says, "Okay, uh, uh, Max, let me see your FTN number, which is the kind of the registration number. Uh, let's see, we put that in, we get all your paperwork. Ah, it doesn't work. Uh, sorry." And that was basically all the uh, designated examiner could do was uh, say, ah, sorry, but uh, I can't get to the paperwork, so I can't give you that practical test. Now, multiply that by hundreds of designated examiners across the country, and uh, 
as I said, the the already behind examination problem was tossed into a, a, an even uh, a bigger mess. And now you may have heard this concept before, but uh, FAA is saying that uh, there was a database issue. A backup uh, was uh, messed up or, or something like that. And uh, so for three or four days uh, at the turn of the month, uh, it was hopeless. And uh, so that, that's the, uh, you know, the issue from the uh, student standpoint. I can't take my check ride. But, of course, the DPEs uh, that, that give the exams, they're, they're just working stiffs. And they say, okay, I'm going to allow Monday from uh, 8 a.m. to noon to give Max his private pilot check ride. And then again, they pull up the uh, uh, computer information. And there's nothing there. And they go, crap. You know, not only do I not give you your check ride, but I don't make any money. And I just blocked off my whole morning. And then I look and my whole afternoon is shot. Uh, and as are all the rides for the next few days. So a lot of examiners lost uh, an awful lot of money, and uh, there hasn't been nearly the outrage in the uh, community because this didn't affect passengers uh, as much because aircraft were not grounded, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, again, the uh, people looking to take practical check rides were, uh, were pretty upset as were the examiners. So, Rob, is this a is this a recurring problem, or is is was this sort of a one time event? Presumably, like we saw with the NOTAM system fiasco. Uh, we- well, I, I had never seen that before. I mean, NOTAMs have been around for a long time. The IACR system has been around for. Uh, maybe 15 years, I think, or something like that. I have never seen it fail in in the past, but then considering the fact that FAA is known for using equipment that is uh, so old that it pro- it's probably rusting inside the cabinets in which it sits, <laughs> uh, this wouldn't be a surprise. Um, but again, I, I don't know that this has ever happened before. Well, hopefully they'll... <laughs> understand what what the issue was and and address it in a way that uh, we don't see this recurring yeah that that will be interesting because faa has been a bit mum on this all right again we're speaking with mark ross smith about airline loyalty programs Uh, mark again welcome to the show one of the th- concepts that uh, you've been talking about is this notion of a status cliff. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one of the hottest topics, I think, in sort of the last six months. Um, just to give it a context, I was at the Aviation Festival in Singapore last week, and it was one of probably the hottest topic there, um, you know, talked about in detail. Effectively, what it is is, Think about in 2020, no one's flying, yeah? Passengers are not flying and you've got tens of millions of people around the world that have gold, platinum, diamond, this kind of elite status with airlines, yeah? And because people couldn't fly, people, you know, people get attached to their elite status. People get attached to their gold status and, 
you know, when it comes towards that end of 2020, when people are like, well, I haven't flown, <laughs> I haven't been flying at all this year, you know, airlines are like, well, you, we'll just keep you at your gold. We'll keep you at your platinum. It's not your fault, right? And then in 2021, uh, airlines extended that status for free again. And the message there was, you're a valuable customer. You know, you're one of our most valuable customers. Thanks for your loyalty. You know, it was a, it was a goodwill message. And then come end of 2022, uh, you know, demand had significantly ramped up. Um, not all capacity was back in, in all markets. Um, you know, if you've flown in the last six months, it can be darn expensive to go to a lot of places. And airlines were looking to not extend that status for free again. So what it meant is if you had like a gold or platinum type status at the end of 2019, you probably had it or have it still until, you know, either now or, you know, maybe a couple of months ago, you might have lost it. So you effectively had a few years of a free ride there. And this is all airlines globally and hotels and car rental, cruise lines, because it like is a lot, right? And if we keep that in mind for a second, uh, the gener- most airlines, the top 5% of loyalty program members generate 30, 40% of all airline revenue. Right, so this is the single most valuable group that an airline has, and you know if you go messing around with people's elite status, you, you run big risks of losing that revenue, right? And so what we've seen is airlines not wanting to extend that; hence, it's a bit of a cliff. We were coining these terms. We we're trying to think of you know anything to a Titanic, and then you know put words after it in the airline context. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's all going down. Um, but, it, but it is, though. That, that's the thing. And, you know, these sort of words get attention, you know. And, um, you know, so what we saw, we saw, you know, early February, we saw Delta downgrade. We're estimating somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 elite members. Wow. And, you know, what, what does that really mean uh, in terms of you and me and other, pass- you know, people that fly out there? Um, what that means is... It's a couple of things. Hopefully, less people trying to get into the lounge. So it should be shorter, shorter lines. That potentially a good thing there. You know, if you've got like a, a, a diamond type status with Delta, it might mean you're higher up on the upgrade list. You know, so there's there's less competition effectively because you've had three years of build up, three years of people with status that haven't been downgraded, right? Because typically every year, think non-COVID, right? There'd be people that come into status and come out of status. It's a natural sort of attrition there. But this is three years in one hit, right? Plus airlines have been out there trying to get people to fly, so they've been giving out status a lot more generously. So that that number of people with status is, is a bit of a bubble, right? So Delta popped their bubble um, in early February. Um, you know, United's gone down the same way. Just last week, Lufthansa downgraded similar hundreds of thousands of numbers, we believe. And so there's, there's a significant risk in it. Think about if you're, if the airline downgrades you, right? After three years of telling you you're an important customer, you're one of our most loyal members. And then they just yank it from you and say, well, you're not anymore. <laughs> right. What happens at that point? So we ran a, we ran a survey on this to, to try and find out because we haven't really seen this in the world before. We actually, there actually is one scenario where we've seen this and funny enough, I have experienced that is at Malaysia airlines. Right. So remember in 2014 when they had two jets that had not the best outcomes, 
uh, in that year, the airline, uh, and they talked about this at an event, they talked about how they extended status for people that year because, you know, there's a bunch of people not so confident in flying the airline. They're like, you know, wanted to keep that confidence there, keep your gold status, keep flying with us. That was the message. And the years that followed, um, not so great um, for the people they, you know, when they extended status. Not Extending status was great, but it, it's kind of like a sugar hit, right? You get, you get the high of it, and then after that, there's this big status cliff, right? The sort of coming down off that, where you take it away from people, right? Because your goal status, it's yours. You earned it. You, know, you, you're, you feel entitled to it. It's, it's your thing, right? Sure. It's not the airlines. It's yours. You worked your, your butt off for that thing. Right, and you feel a bit of ownership. So when you take it away from people, um, they don't feel so good. Anyhow, this survey we did, we asked people, when the airline downgrades you, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep flying with that airline? Are you going to change airlines? Are you going to stop flying altogether? Are you do more Zoom meetings? Are you going to drive? Are you going like what are you going to do? Eighty-six percent of people said that they would shift some or all of their business away from that airline. So they didn't say specifically what they would do. But they would say away from that airline. That is a big number, right? Now, there's a lot of numbers here, but keep that in mind. About 75, 80% of people with a gold or platinum status airline also have the credit card. You know, the co-brand credit card that airlines are forever promoting in flight. You know, get, you know, please have your attention for a second. Get this, get this Amex card. Um, airlines make a lot of money out of that. And those credit cards drive the valuations of the loyalty program because it's what we call high margin revenue. Right, so you know, American Airlines published that their gross margin on selling miles was seventy-two or seventy-three percent um, net margin, fifty-three, I think it was. If you compare that to what a margin might be on selling, you know, a coach seat, which is what at best five percent kind of thing, and so the airlines need to sell these credit cards. They need to people to earn their miles from their credit cards. They need people to spend. They need people engaged in this because there's just so much high margin revenue in this and that underpins the value of the business, yeah? When you downgrade people, there is absolutely going to be a shift in behavior. Uh, it's just how much, right? Is it, you know, 5% of people drop out or is it 95% of people drop out? And so, you know, we looked at Google Trends recently. Um, this is what people search for on Google, right? And the number of people searching for United Airlines status match on like February the 2nd, you know, after Delta has just yanked it from a lot of people, uh, just skyrocketed, right? From people just going to our own website, uh, interested in United American on that date, same thing. The volume was 70% up in uh, January and February compared to other months, um, which is a lot for us. There's definitely people out there looking to shift their business, um, even though it's their own fault for not flying and downgrading, right? That's not how, that's not how humans think. You know, it's, it's our status. We earned it. I'm entitled to it. And you told me I was a great customer, and now, now I'm not. How does that work, right? But do you think that in this day and age, people really believe that when, when a big company says, wow, you are, you are so valuable to us? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm a born cynic having lived in Chicago with our politics all my life. <laughs> but I, I just cannot believe that anybody still thinks that it's credible when they see messages like that. I mean, maybe in in your part of the world, people have more options, but 
I, I think it, you know a good survey, at least to me, would be to to uh, to find those people in another month and said or and say, did, did you actually follow through? on your, you know, you were really pissed off when they dumped you. Uh, did you actually follow through and book your next ticket with another carrier or the same one? Because I, I find that people get really upset, but sometimes they they just go back to to what's easiest for them, which is to do what they've been doing for a long time. A couple of quick things. Uh, Rob, what you just reminded me of is, you know, your call is very important to us. Please stay on hold and we'll be with you as soon as possible, you know, which you know is totally meaningless. But in regards to the value of the credit cards, back in the 1990s, I used to work for L.L. Bean. And L.L. Bean, had a, that was when they first put out their branded card. And it was with a bank that no longer exists. And I was one of the people selling those cards, getting customers to fill out applications. And I would do about 100 of those a day. And for every completed application, the bank, and this was back in the 1990s, for every completed application, not accepted application, completed application, the bank would pay L.L. Bean $50. So just me alone alone was pulling in $5,000 a day for L.L. Bean. And I was one of, I don't know how many dozens of people that were doing it in the store. But what I was going to say in regards to the, the, lawyer, the, cliff, the, the status cliff you were talking about, it works in reverse as well. Uh, in doing the podcast uh, that I'm doing with Brian, The Journey is a Reward, where what we're doing is documenting his uh, work toward earning lifetime 1K status with United. He's working on 3 million miles. He's in Japan right now, and he's only 22,000 miles short. He's got one trip to South Africa coming up, and he's going to have it, and he'll have lifetime 1K status with United. And we've been talking about what that means, and what that means is it's going to free him up to fly on other airlines. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah. It's exactly what it means. He says, I'll be able to go on other airlines. I'll be able to chase fares. When United isn't the cheapest, I'll be able to go with someone else. And in some cases, because it'll be partner airlines, it'll be the same status. And he can definitely do that. So it works on both ends. And I think that's something really important to think about. Totally right. On lifetime status, um, tell you a quick story. I, uh, I used to be one of Qantas's top frequent flyers for many years. And... Um, for my 30th birthday, I went on a status run to hit lifetime gold, which is the one world sapphire level of that. Um, so I hit it at a pretty young age versus a lot of people. And that's just me. I know a lot of pe- other people have lifetime status. It's exactly the same. It's exactly what you say. It actually, they disconnect from that airline. It's like, I've got it in my back pocket now. If I need to use it, it's always there. I don't have to worry about it. And I'll just go fly. Whoever I feel like flying, whoever's the cheapest, got best connections, I want to try this new product, I want to have a shower in the sky, I want, you know, whatever it is they want to try, they just they just chase after that. It definitely, it's the, you know, golden handcuffs that have sort of gone away at that point. So you, I think you're t- totally right that it does work in reverse, but also keep in mind the number of people that get lifetime status with on is ultra small versus the number of people that actually fly, right? But also, I think the uh, the airlines kind of were kind of trapped here in the hotel chains and and, and all the others in terms of uh, extending the the status uh, of their folks, their customers. For uh, Hilton, I'm uh, diamond status, top tier. And when the pandemic started and everything, and no one's traveling, I'm not traveling. I'm wondering what's going to you know happen because there's no way I can maintain it if I'm not. Tra- if I'm not traveling, and I was so pleased to hear that they were going to extend the, um, 
you know, the status. So they they, they kind of had to do it, uh, but now they're they're kind of trapped, and and you know we see what what's happening. They can't extend that indefinitely, so people are going to start to to fall off. It can work backwards on that as well. I uh, when uh, Radisson was one hotel group, and uh, they had hotels all over. I had I, I was a, a gold member of Radisson and had hundreds of thousands of points. I'm down to about a hundred thousand now. But there are very few Radisson and Radisson organizations right now. Although Radisson America is going to be merging with Choice at some point, and I haven't been able to stay in Radisson no matter where I go because there haven't been any hotels. So what do I have to do? Every year, I buy a 1,000 points for 7 bucks, so I don't lose the 100,000 that I have, so that that way, next time I go to wherever, I can you know, use the Radisson when I can get the free nights and use them up and finally get rid of them. Well, Mark, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the valuation of uh, these loyalty programs. And as you, you know, alluded to earlier, uh, especially with respect to the credit card uh, business that's got enormous value for the airlines and the hotels and and others, but uh, maybe t- tell us a little bit about how that valuation is kind of performed. Yep, sure. So we talked about earlier about what we'll call the type of revenue that loyalty programs generate versus what the airline generates from operations, right? So high margin revenue on loyalty, selling points and miles to banks. That's what most of it comes from versus, you know, a ticket sale, right? Uh, typically lower margin. And there's a lot of costs associated with when you sell a ticket, right? Because you've, you've got to get that person from A to B. You've got food, you've got all this sort of operational stuff that just comes along with it. And so the, the revenue that a loyalty program generates is more aligned with a tech company or, or a marketing company, right? And if you look at an, an airline and how they're valued on the market, right? Um, it's anywhere between if you're a really good airline if you're like a Singapore Airlines a Cathay Pacific an Emirates someone like like a really really strong brand great product you do everything right you invest billions in customer experience and all this kind of stuff the absolute number one best outcome you're going to get on the market is probably six eight maybe ten times profit earnings valuation right like that's that's best case that's if you're an amazing airline and you know decades of branding and experience and all this kind of stuff. So that's the that's like the pinnacle. That's where you could possibly get, right? Whereas if you have an an average airline, we'll say, um, but you you're sort of putting all your profits into the loyalty program, they're going those profits will be valued differently. They won't be valued at 6, 8, 10 times on the market. They'll be valued more like a tech or a marketing company, which is somewhere between 20 and 40 times, right? So a $1 profit in the loyalty program is arguably worth four times more than a $1 profit in an airline operations business, right? So this is, this is what some of these airlines are waking up to. Um, American Airlines is a, is a perfect example, you know, for the longest time operationally that just not make I think it was last quarter I read. It's the end of the last 2022, they operationally like negative one cent ASM or something like that. And the only reason they're profitable is because the loyalty program made so much money. So, you know, to the point earlier, is it an airline or a loyalty program? What is the company? What is it really? What is its true business, you know? Um, so, you know, no one disputes you need, you need the airline there. Like, it has to fly. You, this loyalty valuation doesn't exist without the airline existing. So there's, there's a symbiotic relationship 
It's just where, how you can leverage the value of the loyalty to help the airline grow, right? So um, I'll give you one example. Spirit Airlines, I think it was November last year, they raised, uh, so the Free Spirit, this is the loyalty program, raised $500 million on a $4.2 billion valuation, right? I've just, this is just the loyalty program when the airline itself as a whole shebang is only worth $2.3 billion, right? So if you look at it just on the numbers, the airline operations is worth negative $1.9 billion, right? Um, and that $4.2 billion valuation was based on revenue of about, I think it was just under $100 million, $96, $98 million, um, and projected revenue of $350, $360 million by 2025, 26. And so if you look at that, you kind of go, well, is Spirit an airline or is it a loyalty company as well, right? There's a few factors you need to look at. Like, you know, there's obviously they're playing with some of the numbers on the books and to make certain things look certain ways. And the airline needs to exist, right? It needs a great product. It needs to have a lot of aircraft. It needs a capacity. It needs, if you've got like a business class or you know, this kind of stuff, that makes the loyalty program more attractive because when the loyalty program is more attractive, People want the credit card because if you've got the credit card, you go, I can earn miles and one day I can fly first class from New York to London or New York to Paris. I can take my my wife there. I can, we have this great trip. You know, the trip that I would never pay $30,000 in cash for, I might be able to get for, quote, free on miles, right? So that that keeps the dream alive for a lot of people. That's what, that's what keeps people buying into the whole system of miles, um, which you know, da, 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 it underpins the whole damn thing. So when I talk about the the type of revenue that loyalty programs generate, this the loyalty revenue is pretty similar to the ancillary revenue that airlines generate, you know, selling bag fees, seat selection, that kind of stuff. Loyalty is kind of in the same basket of that high margin revenue. So, you know, if I look at sort of the next five or 10 years, where is how are airlines going to transform from where they are now into like, how do they become, how, where's the next hundred billion come from in airline value around the world? And I think it's going to come from a combination of uh, loyalty and the types of revenue that loyalty can generate uh, and other ancillary revenue products, not necessarily on trying to, you know, increase yield and, you know, put more capacity, fill an extra, put extra three rows in a plane and, give people 26 inch pitch seats and stuff like that. I don't think it's going to be that so much. It'll be more, what else can they buy that's high margin? What else can we make a lot of money off? Cause that's going to drive the valuation. It's going to drive the market cap, which means they can borrow more money. You know, so the whole cycle uh, continues from there. And so, you know, in terms of what, what I do as a business with status matches, we, we get more high value customers for, people at airlines you know we if you got gold status with airline with one airline we can get you equivalent with another airline and if you've got gold or platinum status with an airline you're much more likely to fly the airline you're much more likely to get the credit card you're much more likely to engage and earn that type of revenue that the airline needs to you know times you know hundreds of millions of people um that's what drives the value of these programs so i think if anyone's thinking of starting a business out there if you could start something that earns airlines high high um, margin revenue, I think there's something, definitely something in that because that's what drives the value for a lot, of, especially the US airlines right now. 
Do you um, do you that, think the, on, Nigel. I, I'm sorry. Do, do you think the value of the program is is uh, is strong at at a place like Southwest where there are no first class options? I mean, I have a loyalty card through Chase that's Southwest, and I mean, it's nice for me because. Back in the old days when I used to fly more, uh, it was easy to get a a, a seat on, on a Southwest Airlines. Just just being able to go, you know, whenever I wanted uh, for free. Uh, but but again, that's all Southwest can offer as an airline. Um, but uh, I must admit, I don't see very many um, many ways that uh, Chase tries to drag me into buying more stuff. Uh, with my Chase card, where where does that fall? Is that part of the bank's job, or is that the airline's job, or who who handles that? It's a joint marketing effort, generally with between the airline and the bank, the issuer. Uh, maybe the card scheme is also maybe like a Visa as well. They sort of all play together to make that happen. Um, but okay, so you've got this Southwest card. Do you use the card? Sure. Yes. Yes. Good answer. So that's, that's uh, yes, a Southwest, despite all the bad publicity you've been getting lately. Yes. Cool. So you don't have to choose. There's a hundred other credit cards in the country that you could get, but you're choosing that one, right? So every time you swipe and you spend, you know, you go pay your groceries, you buy a TV, whatever it is, right? You're making Southwest money because the bank is buying miles off them, right? And that's just you, Right. Then there's Max and David and Mika and everyone else out there doing exactly the same thing, right? So suddenly you add up, gee, I don't know, 100 million Americans doing that, right? Just earning a little clip on everything. That adds up to a lot of money. So, so that's how Southwest will make money from credit cards is, uh, is on volume, right? Now, if you layer on top of that, people that like Southwest tend to really like Southwest, right? There's a bit of a culture cult thing happening there. Um, so there's that on top of it. And I want to, I want to say that I'm trying to remember the number. It was something like I think 10, 20% of seats on Southwest had, um, well, there was like a points redemption or miles redemption as part of that seat. So it wasn't necessarily people just paying cash. It's people using their points. I can't remember. The exact, I think it was, it was somewhere around that number. And that was a lot higher than the industry average, right? Which says to me, there is super high engagement. That says to me, people that are in the Southwest brand are really in it versus what I see at other airlines, right? Hence, more loyal. So when you do fly on a sector that you, you, know, you need to go to, you're more likely to choose Southwest than someone else, which is great for them. Well, I had two questions, but now I have three. Um, <laughs> you talked about the credit cards and how that does make money for Southwest and for the bank, but there is some... Big talk going on in the U.S. right now about reducing credit card fees that are being charged to merchants because Visa and MasterCard have a what some people call it a cartel, and the merchants are paying a huge amount in order to take those cards. And when those fees are reduced, so a lot of the benefits and and, and rebates and things from the card will will happen. Is that being discussed? And and have have you talked about that? And and how that's going to affect airline cards like Southwest and my United card and, and some of the others? Yeah, so we've seen this around the world. It's a disaster when, if it happens. So let's hope it doesn't happen in the US. Um, so I'm Australian. I Australia was one of the first countries to, it's called capping the interchange rates. So this is the amount that they share in the transactions between each other. 
And what how it all started is the the Reserve Bank of Australia went on a you know a worldwide trip trying to convince other countries to do the same thing many years ago. I think it started about two thousand three, four, sometime around there. And they convinced a bunch of other countries to do this, saying it was great for consumers. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's actually bad for for you and me and everyone, all millions of people that spend out there. So in Australia, what's happened? Uh, you know, for anyone that lives there or is visiting. Pretty much everywhere you go, you know, you go pay for your coffee and it's five bucks and you whip out your your MasterCard and they say, oh, there's a 3.5% surcharge for this transaction, right? You go to a, ho- you go to a five-star hotel, you pay 10,000 bucks for your two nights accommodation and they say, sir, there's a 1.25% surcharge for credit cards, right? And you, you're paying that. It's not the business. It's they're putting it all back on you, right? So... And that's just Australia. You know, I live in Malaysia, which also has a cap on interchange. Um, the government did um, make it illegal for uh, for businesses to charge extra for for credit, accepting credit cards, which is a good thing because it's, you know, you see the price on the sticker, that's what you pay. It's easy to understand. Europe um, went uh, has a, a cap on interchange as well. Hence, you don't see many airline credit cards over there. Um, there's a lot less and they're a lot less attractive for consumers. People move to debit cards, to cashback cards, to bank issued cards, not airline cards. Um, and that affects a lot of the financials of these airlines as well. So I think if you look at holistically, you know, which model is best for the world, right? Um, businesses will survive no matter what, generally, even small businesses, they'll figure out a way to do this. You know, the people are most affected are consumers, right? Because there's more of us and we're all consumers at the end of the day, right? And, you know, it ultimately should come down to what's best for you and me and everyone else, not necessarily what's best for the big airline, right? The second question I had had to do with airline points in general. Is there a time when those points become a liability for the airline because they owe this much, these many points, these many free flights or whatever it is, uh, and they're on the books and, and they need to make up for that? When or does that become a liability because there are so many millions or billions of points out there that at one point or another they're going to have to pay for? Very good question. You're right and wrong at the same time. Um, <laughs> It's it's a liability, but only if people use them, right? If you never use your points, it's they're kind of like magic beans that just sit there and never get used, right? Um, so airlines can um, they can only realize the revenue of of the actual mile when they're redeemed or they expire or something happens. The problem is now a lot of US airlines have moved to no expiry, where your, your miles never expire, no matter what you do, right? They're going to run into a pickle one day with that. Um, it's like the debt ceiling in the US. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. So, you know, is is it a liability? Not not really. It it is if you use them, right? Because you think there's this on is it think what's on the books and then cash, right? Cash is really the thing to think about, right? So when you redeem your miles, they're paying someone. Right, so either internally, the the loyalty program is paying the airline for that seat that you're redeeming to Kansas, or they're you know they're paying a gift card company because you're cashing out for a fifty dollar Walmart or what you know whatever it is, right? So it's it's really when people use their miles is where it really impacts the the cash of the airline or the loyalty program. So you know in some ways they could just you know just rack up 
trillions and trillions and trillions of like all the miles that exist just in the USA. So forget the rest of the world, just the USA. It's not possible for them all to be redeemed on flights. It would take hundreds of years of airlines just flying nobody except for miles passengers, right? In which case they'd have no cash in that time, right? So they'd all go broke pretty darn fast. Um, it's, it's just not possible. So, you know, that's why, you know, if, if you really have in mind, I want that business class ticket to Tokyo or whatever, if you see that flight available, go book the damn thing because <laughs> there's, <laughs> you know, the demand for that is is off the charts, especially the last few years when capacity hasn't been there, right? But the number of miles being issued to people has exploded, right? So you've got all these number of miles going and the number of seats being reduced is less. So there's more miles that exist in the world today than it ever has before in the history of mankind. And that's only ever going up. And the number of new seats, the new capacity and points redemptions available is not growing at the same rate, right? It's kind of like, you know, the, in the Titanic movie, you know, the guy that the, the engineer is like, he says to Rose in the movie, goes, you know, if anything happens, you know, you make sure you're first to get the life jacket because there's not enough on board, <laughs> right? <laughs> Use your miles if the pro tip of the day, yeah. If you see a seat you want, go book it. That's what we say on, on The Journey is Reward about fares. We kind of paraphrase Stevie Winwood and say, when you see a, when you see a fare, take it. When you find a good fare, buy it. Um, my final question is about status match. I want to get into this for a minute, okay? So... I, I'm going to talk hotels because that's going to affect me a little bit more right now. I have platinum status and close to a million points with IHG. Um, so with status match, are you saying that if I let you know about those points and my platinum status and that I've been there, that you might be able to get me that similar status with, with Hilton or Marriott or with something else because I already have that status? Can you talk a little bit more about status match? It sounds fascinating. Short answer is yes and no again. Um, in that the con- so the concept of status matching has been around for like 35 years. It's not a new thing, right? So I think 1986 is the first example of status match we have where someone sent a fax into American Airlines. They were flying United a lot and said, hey, I fly them a lot. Can you give me some vouchers, right? Here you go. Here's some vouchers. So we consider that the first status match. Yes. So... Status match, we, we build a product around it. So me and a couple other guys, all ex-airline guys as well, we we saw there's a problem in the loyalty space and we built a product around it to systemize it for airlines. Because airlines are, and hotels, they're not so good at running a status match um, campaign or offer themselves, right? So we built this beautiful thing to, to manage it for them. Um, so business is a couple of years old now. Started in the middle of the pandemic. Frontier was our first customer. We launched with them, ultra successful. Um, and it worked because we charged the customer fee, right? So in your case, if we could help you match your IHG Platinum into Hilton Diamond, for example, um, in that case, we would charge you a fee to do it, right? Which serves a couple of things. Firstly, if you pay a fee, you're, you're more serious, right? I'm talking nominal fee, not crazy money. And so you get your new Hilton status and you're like, well... I'm going to make use of this now. I'm going to go stay at Hilton, right? So you kind of, you know, you don't buy Amazon Prime and not use it, right? You use it, right? In which case you're giving them even more money, right? Which is great. Um, so that that's loosely the concept. We move the status or don't move it. We, we give you the equivalent with the other airline hotel. Uh, the, you keep your points. You keep your status with the old. So you'd keep your IHG Platinum. You'd keep it the million 
points you've got in there as well, we would just get you the status over here as well. So the idea is you now have your new Hilton diamond or gold, whatever it works out to be, and it's in your back pocket now. And you're like, next time I stay somewhere, you know, I'm, I'm going to, it's in my consideration set at that point. You know, I might try Hilton next time. You know what I mean? Whereas previously, you're, you're not even thinking about it, right? It, it never even come up. You're like, well, I'm just, I will stay at an Intercon or a Crown Plaza, whatever I can, Holiday Inn. I'm, I'm, I'm a Holiday Inn guy. But now suddenly it's like, you know, there's a double tree down the road. You're like, well, I can get a free breakfast and I might get an upgrade. And, you know, I might get these things. And so you're going to think about it. For the first time in your life, you're thinking, I might try it, right? And that's why status matching is so effective because it shifts behavior. It un- unlocks you from the brand that you're so attached to, right? And you just try it, right? So it's Hilton's goal in doing that is not to get you to requalify for Diamond, even though they would like you to do that. It's just to get something out of you because they're getting nothing today, right? So that's why when you see a status match come up very publicly in the market, so we run a bunch of public above the line type stuff and a bunch of what we call below the line where we don't really tell people, but it exists, right? So like, Emirates, for example, is one of our customers. That's how we work with them, right? They don't promote this big offer to the market, but if you contact them and say, hey, you know, I've got Delta Platinum, I, you know, want to try your airline, they'll send them, they'll send you to us, right? Go through a process, there's a fee, and we get you upgraded pretty quickly. You then have this new gold status. You're like, well, I'm going to try it now. Hmm. Yeah, just, sure. just, about, just about trying. It's about unhooking you from what you're used to doing. Well, it sounds like Max and me and maybe Brian need to get in touch with you with Status Match <laughs> yeah. and and get set up. So, <laughs> so the sounds good in the in the in the example here with the hotels, uh, and it could be an airline example or anything else. The the motivation or the reason that um, in in this case the the Hilton uh, uh, goes along with this or, or is interested in doing this is because, as you say, Mark, that represents possibly getting some incremental business is it a is it a permanent status match or is it a a temporary thing generally the brands we work with it's a it's a year type thing so it's like we give it to you for a year or for the calendar year whatever the time frame is that they generally work on uh and in that year you know you get to use it enjoy it try it um and hopefully requalify on merit the next time around so you know come the next year you've you've requalified on you know you've done your 40 50 nights whatever it is um and you keep it for the next year um not everyone obviously retains it the next year and part part of the goal is there'll be a few people that do that there'll be a few people that try it out there'll be a few people that just do one or two and some will do nothing you know that's just the nature of the game but if the brand if the hiltons of the world want the people they're going to move all their business from from ihg over to hilton if they want that they're going to have to give this out, right? Otherwise, they get Zippo from right, you get you know, these companies. But what do the I, in this example? What do the IHGs of the world think about this? Well, they do it as well. They do it as well. <laughs> Everyone's doing it. So they're they're all robbing each other of of uh, yeah of potential customers. Well, you know what this this is a good thing. You know, think about it. What it means is these companies, these brands, should be putting more effort into customer retention into having a great brand experience. Like I've, I've just started using IHG, right? So I, I bought their Ambassador Club a couple of weeks ago. I had my first day ever at Incontinental last week. It was fantastic. This is in Singapore. Fantastic. I've been using their app and their app is very, um, 
loyalty focused, I will say. It, that's what it feels like. Here's your benefits. You see the points everywhere. You know, any special requests. It's like, it's actually really nice to use. I, I, I enjoy it um, versus some other hotel apps, you know. So I feel for me, I'm having a fantastic time with it. I've had one stay. Right? I've got another another one coming up. I've, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. To me, that is a customer experience slash customer retention type thing, right? And if brands put more focus on that, they wouldn't lose customers, right? Because if you're having such a fantastic experience, right? Let's put it in the context of like marriage for a second, right? If you have a really happy marriage, you're not going to you gotta look elsewhere. You're treading on right? dangerous <laughs> ground here. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> No, but it's very true, and that's part of the problem just in general, and I can only speak for the USA, that companies are more focused on customer recruitment than they are on retention. Uh, I, I, you know, you think about cable companies, you know, and how awful they are with promotions, and, but, but just in general, that's how it is. Getting a new customer is more important than keeping a customer that may have been with them for 35 years. Totally agree. All right, well, Mark, tell us uh, what our listeners can find at Travel Data Daily. So Travel to Daily is um, my industry blog for, you know, the, I think you've got a lot of people listening that also that in the business. Um, that, so that's traveldatadaily.com. It's all free. Just just check it out. Read it there. I put a lot of thought leadership stuff. I have a lot of other contributors there that talk about their various, their area of expertise. So we've got, you know, people from revenue management and all sorts of stuff in, in airlines that talk about new concepts, new ideas uh, in there. So that's... Um, it's travel.daily.com. Uh, otherwise, check out statusmatch.com um, where, you know, if there's, there's, you know, there's a bunch of brands we do work with. Some we don't. Obviously, we don't work with everyone. Um, so, you know, it's free to join statusmatch.com. There is a fee to if you want to do a status match. Otherwise, if there's brands we don't work with, we have a, a waitlist feature where you can say for, like, for example, American Airlines, we don't work with them, but you could waitlist for it. And what it means is, you know, we effectively go to the airline and say, hey, look, there's demand for your product. We've got people with, you know, status with Delta, whoever, you know, that, that want to engage with the program. Um, we don't tell them who you are, but we, we share some numbers with them and, you know, say, hey, let's do something for these people. So that, that sort of helps us as well because not all airlines and brands want to do this all the time. So we're out there trying to encourage them to do it because, you know, that ultimately benefits, you know, millions of travelers globally, right? Mark, you know, is it a flat fee, and can you tell us what it is, or is it not something that you want to discuss here? Yeah, fees they they vary depending on the brand, the time frame. Like on statusmatch.com, that it can be anywhere from twenty nine to one hundred ninety nine, depending on the brand. So, like an, an Emirates currently is one ninety nine, uh, whereas someone like a Best Western kind of thing is about hotels. You know, towards the lower end of that. Um, these fees do change over time. Um, some of these are driven by the brand itself, not not by us. But yeah, so, but you know, status matching generally, if historically has been free, right? There's been a lot of issues that airlines and hotels have run into with fraud around that, and you know, so hence there's been no one that's really thought how, how do we fix this. So we sort of came along and think how do we how do we make money out of it, right? Because yeah. they're not going to fix it for free. Um, so we thought, well, if we just put a fee there and if that's part of how we make money, then we can help the airlines do more with it, right? And so that's that's been pretty successful. So there's, you know, probably eight or so big brands we work with now um, on big above-the-line campaigns in addition to up more, even more brands below the line. 
Um, and so, you know, we're out there sort of advocating on behalf of the four of you plus billions of other travelers that are trying to get more deals and, you know, more status for everyone because I, th- I think that people should be trying new brands, new airlines, you know. Once you've got that lifetime status locked in, try someone else. Why not? right? See what else is out there. That's what travel's about. It's about seeing, exploring the world, seeing new brands, seeing new types of flatbeds that other airlines have. Have a shower in the sky on Emirates. It's fantastic. Highly recommended. And you had some success with this concept in Canada recently, didn't you? Yeah, we did a, a pretty big interesting promotion with uh, between Destination Canada, which is the government tourism board of Canada and Air Canada. So we sort of linked the uh, sort of tri-party type deal there um so this this is back about a year ago when the um the u.s canadian border just reopened so end of 2021 because it was closed for so long right um so when it reopened you know canada as a country you know wanted more high value you know people to travel to people that are traveling with purpose right so there's business leisure these kind of folks to come in so we facilitated a status match from um the airlines in in the usa for americans um you know to get a Canada status there in Star Alliance, you know, so you could, you could try it out. And the only requirement is you just had to do one, one trip to Canada. And that could have been like a $200 flight, right? Pretty easy. And that, so that was, that was ultra successful for the country, for the airline, for us, you know, did pretty well. And it got a bunch of new people to try Air Canada. Everyone's sort of stuck on their own. I mean, even me in here in Asia, there's a few airlines that I'm pretty hooked on. Right. And so for me to try, a new brand, it's like it's gonna, it takes more than just giving me fifty percent off a flight, right? Or some bonus miles, right? I want the I want the gold status. <laughs> I want to I want to check out the lounge. You know, I want I want the VIP. So I want I I need at least what I'm used to over here with this other brand, right? That's like the minimum bare minimum requirement for even to even think about it. So that plus a good price, plus maybe decent connection, maybe if there's a um. You know, actually, example, last week I flew KL Singapore and, you know, I thought I'll try Singapore Airlines, right? And there was an A350 flying on that sector. It's a 45-minute flight, right? So I'm like down straight. I'm down for – I'm a wide-body fan, especially on short haul, so I'll, I'll go for that. And that that's what kind of got me across the line on that. So very successful uh, offer that was in the market. Well, fascinating conversation, Mark. There's uh – a lot of aspects to uh, airline loyalty and hotels and travel and so forth. And uh, really glad that you came and explained some of these things to our listeners. Uh, just fascinating stuff. Uh, give us the websites again that uh, folks can go to find the, the things we've been talking about. It's at Travel Data Daily is the industry blog site. Lots of thought leadership stuff on that. Uh, statusmatch.com is the um, main website for that. It's good to register on there in case there's a really big campaign that comes up, um, something really big above the line that we run for a brand. That's how we notify folks. Definitely the stuff coming up in your part of the world, so highly recommended there. Um, otherwise, if you want to just connect me in general on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on there, and I will say hello to everyone. So LinkedIn. Terrific. Just my name. Great. All right. Really appreciate it. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks, Mark. All right, what's up with the geeks? Uh, let's see, uh, Micah, what uh, what have you got for us this week? Oh, I've got a few things, actually. Um, first of all, finally, 
They've announced that on Saturday, June 17th, it's going to be this year's day for the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum Udvarhazy Center's Innovations in Flight program. Just heard about that from Hillel, who uh, hopefully will be flying down again and being on display outside. And uh, we're not sure if the uh, program's going to go back to the pre-pandemic days when, uh, you know, they had some stuff uh, going on inside the museum or not. We're not sure if we're going to be taking part in it, but we will definitely keep you informed and hopefully we'll be invited down because, boy, I kind of miss that place. It's been a long time since I've been there. Yes, yes. So that's that's one bit of news. A second bit of news is uh, that uh, Brian is uh, in Japan, Brian Coleman, and uh, our former associate producer and current producer and, and host of uh, Journey is Reward podcast. He's working on editing. It's uh, the last episode, episode 36, which is his trip to uh, South Africa. And uh, when he gets back, we'll do a show about his trip to Japan. And uh, that's been going really well. And he is so close to earning his lifetime one case status. He's less than 22,000 miles away now that uh, he's got one trip coming up to South Africa and he should be crossing that 3 million mile mark somewhere mid-Atlantic on his way back. So uh, we're very excited about that. But then the question comes up about the podcast and that is, now what? That's right. <laughs> so, sounds like a satellite nearing the, you know, its destination or it's only 22,000 miles away. Yeah, that's it. He can do that standing on his head the way he's been going. It's just crazy. He's done all this in a year. So, Well, I hope the two of you are able to continue with the podcast together because it's, uh, it's a great listen. Well, thank you. We, we, we have a lot of fun with it, and uh, as you can probably hear. And uh, what he's been talking about is maybe the last episode we may do an unexpurgated, unexpurgated version where we, uh, he does not edit. But uh, I don't know if the audience is ready for that. <laughs> they may not be ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other big news from up here in Portland, Maine, and I'm really excited about this, is Breeze Airlines is coming to the Portland Jetport. Uh, service was just recently announced. They're going to be serving... Uh, Tampa uh, and uh, Charleston, Tampa, Florida, and Charleston, South Carolina, uh, on a year-round basis with Tampa flights going on Wednesdays and Fridays and service at Charleston on Mondays and Fridays. And then uh, between June 2nd and September 5th, they're going to be having service on Mondays and Fridays to Norfolk, Virginia and Pittsburgh, PA. And uh, it's just great to see another airline coming here to, uh, to to Portland, Maine and the Portland Jetport. And I got to tell you, our friend, the director of the airport, Paul Bradbury, is very excited. And so am I. There's going to be a big celebration and I'm hoping to be a part of that. Does Breeze Airlines have a loyalty program? Do we know? They must. I don't know. But, uh, you know, if David Needleman is setting it up, I'm sure they would do if they don't. They will if they don't already. It's easy to join. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's going to be a breeze. It's going to be a breeze. <laughs> I just, shaboom. I knew Michael was going to try that. And I, I just Somebody. wanted to beat him. Shaboom, shaboom. Yeah, yeah. All right. Life could be a breeze. All right, Rob, anything from you? Uh. Actually, it's funny because as we were recording this, I was uh, getting an email from a friend of mine here in uh, in Chicago, uh, Matt, uh, who uh, used to work with the Embraer folks. He's a, a Brazilian uh, by birth, and uh, he speaks terrific English. He's also on the board of our uh, Pilots Association at Executive Airport. And I said, Matt, I'm going to make sure that you're really listening by calling out your name. So, hi, Matt from Chicago, and we'll see if he's really listening or if he's just faking me out. Let's all say hi. Hi, Matt. 
Amen. Amen. All right. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 3rd of March, 2023. Well, good day, folks. Welcome to the Australia Desk for this week's episode of the Airplane Geeks. I really wish I knew what number it was, but I've lost track. And I've lost track, Grant, because we are standing here uh, in a lull between flying displays at the Australian International Air Show at Avalon in Victoria. And we certainly are, mate. And uh, our feet tied, or what we've been walking from one end to the other, getting content, and also trying to find quiet spots to record. Very hard with all the generators, the music, the commentary, and all the other stuff going on. Especially the music. <laughs> Who's selecting that playlist? Good Lord. <laughs> Tracy Chapman? <laughs> well, it's certainly not me. I'm just up there occasionally doing commentary for a few acts. Well, Grant, um, now, of course, as we always talk about with Avalon when we come here, it's it's ostensibly a trade show. This is a, a stage for business and government to come and make uh, big announcements. Airlines sometimes, although uh, we haven't really seen airline announcements, at least none that I've seen. But there has been a few military announcements while we've been here. Yeah, there's been a lot of attention about the AH-64, of course, because Australia's buying the Apache. Uh, some doorstops about that, the Growler, the P-8, things like that. Uh, but one of the big bits of news is that uh, the Triton, the uh, broad area maritime surveillance drone, I call it a drone, but it's un- unmanned or uncrewed aerial system. It's got a wingspan like a 737. We've got three of them. We're hoping for more. Most of us are hoping for more. But the big news is we're noticing that on the replica that they've got here, there is a uh, certain piece of art on the tail for Nine Squadron. (laughs) Nine Squadron's been uh, shut down for some time. Well, they're going to stand it back up again, and uh, we're going to have have Nine Squadron back. Of course, people get a little upset when you announce that uh, before the official announcement, but the uh, response is, well, why did you have that painted on the tail without covering it over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. some people need to really, uh, you know, get up to date with the media ops and how it works here. Speaking of drones, Grant, we've just done a really good interview. We might actually play a snippet of it in a sec. Um, Speaking of drones, and people think they cost megabucks, but the people we just spoke to, um, that's not actually the case. No, it's a $50,000 drone built here in Australia by the RAAF and uh, the Defence Science Technology Group. So a bunch of folks got together to make a uh, sovereign drone that uh, could do intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, and, yeah, it's really cool. Here's what our young man, our poor, unwilling guest from the Royal Australian <laughs> Air Force, had to say about that, the poor sod. <laughs> Little did he know. Uh, the intent was to build a sovereign, low-cost, uh, rapid manufacture, flexible drone. So, basically, the platform costs approximately $50,000 to make, and so that's very cheap compared to previous models and what we have in the air at the moment. <laughs> And uh, what is its typical loiter uh, staying aloft time? Uh, its typical loiter time is 14 hours, um, and it can go up to 700 nautical miles at a ceiling of 5,000 feet. Okay, that's well beyond visual line of sight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess it's... Uh, so if it goes out 700 miles, hangs out there for 10 hours, and then comes back, yeah? Uh, yeah, exactly. And then you can have them on rotation. So we have multiple platforms at the moment, about seven. So you'd be able to have two or three rotating through... Is it just working on its own, its own, or are you working it with other uh, other operators, other other groups and platforms and things like that? Yeah, it can be used to enhance the effectiveness of other platforms, and it can work in joint missions with all three services. 
um, but otherwise it can work independently. So it's very flexible in what it can do. How much does it weigh and, and what's its wingspan, that kind of stuff? Yep, uh, it has a wingspan of four metres and it weighs 36 kilos fully fueled. Um, it has a payload of two kilos and so at the moment that's the current sensor that we have on the front. And um, it also uses a four-stroke fuel injector for the engine. So there you go, Grant. I mean, 50000 bucks for a uh, mil-spec drone that can go out and loiter and do all that sort of work. And um, as he mentioned, it's sovereign technology. It's stuff that was made here. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I was joking off the record that uh, uh, probably more than half of it is that electro-optical infrared sensor package on the nose. Now, of course, Grant, you mentioned that uh, you'll be on the commentary team here. Uh, you'll be doing uh, stuff right across the weekend. I'm heading home because, you know, I'm a very old man and my legs are tired. We've been here for four days. But uh, somebody who's retiring is Peter Meehan. Now, Peter Meehan has been the air show commentator, really the voice of Avalon, for the last more than 30 years, actually, just over 30 years. And uh, we spoke to him and his replacement, Tony Moclair, a little earlier in the week. Well, I joined in 1992, and I, I don't like saying it was a fledgling air show. But it really wasn't. But by today's standard, it was a, quite a basic air show. And there were international guests and visitors, and the flying was terrific. The RAAF participation, Navy and Army, was, was terrific. But not to the level and the dynamics of what this air show is now showing, and the air shows of the last 10 to 15 years. But now 30 years have rolled on, and uh, commentary for me has been an absolute joy. Uh, what's joyful about it is the unpredictable elements of the fluid movement of air shows and what goes on to make an air show work. And that fluid movement really does at times test you to see how mobile we are, I am, to cope with the fluid movement. And, and it's very real. And you've really got to think up on the ball of your feet very often. But at the end of this air show, uh, it's time for me to hang up my microphone uh, for all sorts of reasons. But uh, I'm going on to another stage uh, in my life and my business. And uh, I will miss the air show, but I will continue to attend the air show. So, Tony, what a dream, hey, mate? It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. And you, look, I've been coming to the air show since 92, and he's as much a part of it as the Australian Defence Force. You know, you, you can't think of an air show without the ADF or without Peter. And, uh, you know, in succeeding him, I feel like the roulette's going up after the Black Eagles. So, uh, but look, um, <laughs> well, no, you know, it's, no, that's, that's not a knock on anyone. Um, exactly. Thank you. So um, it's, look, uh, to, to be up close watching, uh, watching how it goes has been fascinating and eye-opening. And, um, yeah, I, look, I definitely bring uh, a lot of knowledge about aviation and uh, experience as a broadcaster. So it's fusing those two and getting the, uh, I guess, the, the public speaking part of it, nailing that down uh, during the course of this air show. So I'm primed and ready for uh, two years hence. And I'm really happy for Tony Moclair. Tony Moclair is a uh, well-known radio host here in Melbourne, uh, probably on Melbourne's biggest talk radio station. And uh, it's actually interesting. I've been on air with him a few times talking about uh, aviation, and there's quite an interesting shtick that goes on between him and, well, his former producer, who would always <laughs> put the buzzer on him as soon as he starts talking. But uh, Tony is a good friend of ours, and uh, we really wish him well as he uh, takes on this, uh, this big role for him. Indeed. And uh, uh, one thing to wrap it up, for David... Over in the uh, large jet parking area, we have a KC-10 extender, a KC-46A Pegasus, and the KC-135 Stratotanker. So all, an example of all three of the USAF's tankers are here. They're um, all gathered together, pointing their noses in the same direction, which seems to be going towards 
the uh, Luftwaffe's A400M where they have a bar out the back. So, you know, thus three tankers crawl into a bar type of thing. But uh, <laughs> it's, a I, it's a wonder you've been anywhere else at this air show with that in mind. I know, right? I've been, well, you know, I've been working and all that. So uh, <laughs> I never stopped me before, right? But anyhow, the thing that I'm doing is I'm calling those tankers Grandpa, Junior and Cousinette. I'm calling it the David Vanderhoof Memorial parking apron here because I know, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, mate. I know how much you love this. Look, uh, interesting to see the KC-10. That'll be the last time we see it here in Australia. We know that tight's being retired. The 135s, we see them every Avalon. They come down from Kadena, uh, yeah. the airbase at Okinawa there. So um, that's where a lot of the USAF assets normally come from when they're coming here to Avalon. So, uh, yeah, good to see the KC-10. And then the 46, I wonder how often we'll see that. We certainly don't see them much down here in Melbourne when uh, when the US forces come to Australia. They obviously stage out of the northern states, uh, and there's yeah. obvious reasons for that. <laughs> so it's uh, it's good to, see, uh, you know, good to see that type here. Yeah, and when it takes six hours to get from down here to, oh, there we go, we've just left Australian soil uh, <laughs> while flying. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good reason to be more up the north. But, uh, mate, I think uh, I'll get a photo for David and uh, we'll send it over to him when, when no one's crowding the ramp. No, you'll never speak to us again. Anyhow, that's everything we have for you on uh, this Australia desk coming from the Australian International uh, Air Show here at Avalon. We've been doing a lot of content this week for uh, Australian Defence Magazine and of course uh, if you've uh, missed the announcement, we've actually relaunched Playing Crazy Down Under, that old podcast we used to do. We're back! We're back indeed, so we've been uh, recording some really good interviews, so uh, australiandefence.com.au if you want to hear the uh, content we've been doing right now and uh, over the next month or two we're really looking forward to getting back in and and doing some podcasting and uh, trying to talk up some positive good news stories about aviation here in Australia. That's the one, mate. That's the one that's got to get the positive out there because you need those positive thoughts to get over the hurdles. Yes, and you probably need to refresh your RSS feeds too, particularly if you use Pocket Cast. It doesn't seem oh, to that's just, been, that's just been refreshed. It happened last night. Okay, there we go. Well, that's a miracle. Okay, until <laughs> next week, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks. Now, let's go find that pub. Can you walk that far? A little <laughs> yeah. bit further? Can you carry me? Oh, I love those guys. You know, I, I just, I, I got to say something here. Is this going to Out be of, tanker though, These two, these two, these two, at least Ben was smart enough to send me a picture of my local aircraft that landed at Avalon. The C-5M was actually from down the road at Dover. Really? So... So we had a Dover aircraft and then three tankers. So I, I, I get the whole tanker thing. But, but they could have pointed out the fact that my now home state sent an aircraft to their air show. And if I knew they were going, I probably should have gotten a ride. You know, I can hear those guys cursing right now, just like Michael Corleone. Just when we thought we were out, they pulled us back. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to a, a reboot of Playing Crazy Down Under. That's very exciting. I, t- I got to get back to Australia. Jeez, it's been it's been forever. I just heard their latest episode, and it's funny how their their final goodbye episode was their hello episode at the same time. Yes, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it was at one thirty, I think, episode one thirty. I believe. I don't remember the number? But uh, yeah, it's in the feed now, even in Pocket Cast, because I know Grant was uh, a little apprehensive about it showing up there, but but it did eventually. Hey, Pocket Cast is great. Max Flight turned me on to it. Yeah, I love it. It's great. All right, well, as you know, uh, Brian Coleman has been visiting uh, many 
many regions of the world, oftentimes just to, to fly there, turn around, get on a plane, and, and come right back, building his miles. But he was recently in Israel and spent some time there. And one of the things that he was able to do was to visit El Al's MRO facility in Tel Aviv. So Brian and I had a little conversation about what he found there, and uh, we'll play that right now. Well, I'm here with Brian Coleman. Brian, it's good to see you. Max, it's great to be seen. (laughs) Yes. And you've been seen by, I think, a lot of people all around the world lately as you work to complete your uh, United uh, Lifetime 1K status. Uh, you're getting pretty close to the uh, to that mark, aren't you? Yeah, I have 48,000 miles to go. So I started with just a little under 300,000 miles. So in a year, I've, yeah, flown, gosh, an awful lot. An awful lot. And to some interesting places. And you were just in Israel. I was. I United put, um, put out a what I felt to be an inexpensive airfare to Tel Aviv. And I figure I could only go to Singapore and South Africa so many times. So I'd mixed it up a little bit. And one of our listeners of the Airplane Geeks, Al, uh, said, you know, come on over and have a visit and I'll set up some uh, meetings for you while you're here. And how could I possibly pass that up? Yeah, he's a great guy. Been a listener for quite a while. That was great that you got to... uh meet up with him and and do some interesting things. Uh, Anything uh, specific that you might want to describe for us? He set up a meeting with me at El Al, so the National Airline of Israel, and we went to their dispatch center, and they are now a fully certified MRO. And I got to experience some kind of unusual things at the MRO. Yeah, MROs are, I've always found them fascinating places. Uh, I've been to many of them over the years. So El Al is is bringing in uh, outside work? Yeah, they are. And I think it makes sense for them because, I don't know how to describe this, they have certain security concerns and they have special procedures that need to be followed and equipment on their aircraft. And I don't think they want other organizations working on their aircraft. So therefore, they went through the paperwork, the headache, the hassle of getting fully certified. And since they have a relatively small fleet, and I was kind of surprised to learn that it's only about 45 aircraft, they have this great capacity. So why not contract it out and work on other organizations' aircraft? And that's exactly what they're doing. They're turning into a money-making operation. And did you get out into the shop and see some work being done? Oh, I did. I was very, very fortunate in that they had a 787 that was in for a C check. Ah, the way checks work is there's A check, B check, although that's kind of combined with A check sometimes, C check and D check, which are increasing levels of uh, of maintenance depending on flight hours and sometimes pressurization cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that differs from one aircraft to another. They're not all They're not all the same, but... HX are more kind of visual inspections, let's say. Um, I probably should also mention there's also line checks, which is, uh, you know, what can happen out on the ramp. Those are, you know, extremely, uh, generally pretty pretty simple. But the other, uh, other checks, you typically find them in the, you know, in the hangar or in the shop. 
And I got to experience a line check as well on the flight home from Israel. The inbound aircraft got struck by lightning. Ah. So they had to do a check before they allowed us to board. So that was uh, a new experience for me as well. And each airline has a a pretty specific plan for these different checks and when they they occur. A sea check is a pretty major check that can take, um, what would you say, a couple of weeks typically? Yeah, they allocated two weeks, and they certainly wanted it done before two weeks because when an airplane is in a hangar, it's not making them any money. Sure, uh, but but they allocate two weeks for it. And then the granddaddy is the is the D check, which is essentially take the whole airplane apart, including removing the interior and so forth. So that's uh, an airplane might typically experience just a couple of D checks in their in their history before the plane's retired or sold out to someone else. But you saw a sea check and tell us uh, what that's like. It was really fascinating for me because I had never seen an aircraft taken apart to this extent. I've done factory tours where I've seen them put together, but not taken apart. And this one was, I guess, kind of a combination of a sea check and a D check because they were also doing an interior refurbishment. Now, they were saying that they didn't have to do the interior refurbishment, but they wanted commonality amongst their aircraft. And this was one of their older 787s, and they just wanted to refresh the interior to have it be more in line with the newer 787s. So they just figured since it's being pulled out of service, they would uh, do the interior refresh as well, even though it wasn't required. But it was really fascinating that they, instead of erecting regular scaffolding around the aircraft, they had a platform, a movable platform that enveloped the aircraft. And not only did it do the the sides where people could access you know, the various access panels and the doors to get in, but it also did the wings. And they could tilt the platform so the mechanics and working on the wings and doing all their inspections never had to raise or lower anything. They were just sort of on this ramp that conformed to the curvature of the of the wing. And regardless of the aircraft that they bring into the hangar, they can adjust this work platform to the appropriate aircraft. And yeah, I'd never seen one of those before. And that was super cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't encountered that uh, before, but uh, with the with the scaffolding, especially if you're doing different aircraft types, I don't know. You, you've either got to have multiple sets of sca- uh, scaffolding that's aircraft specific, or I don't know. I guess you you construct the scaffolding each time, you know, mm-hmm. using raw scaffolding parts. I don't know what you yeah. call it, and you know, in the in the plans for that plane. But if it's a uh, uh, something that doesn't change that's usable, like this ramp thing for any aircraft type that they might service in there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and they, of course, had a crane mounted in the ceiling as well. So if they had to remove an engine, they could or any other heavy components. Um, yeah, it it was really well done, really th- well thought out, I think. So is it a um, a beehive of activity or is it? kind of quiet and, you know, crews working in their specific areas, some of which you can see, some of which you can't because they're inside the airplane. Yeah. And there were certainly people all over. So yes, in the belly of the aircraft, they were inspecting the 
plumbing lines, the water tanks, the holding tanks. They had people working on the engines. They had, uh, because they were doing the interior refurbishment, they had people inside. Uh, they were actually at the point where they were going to put down the carpet again. And I found that really fascinating because every piece of carpet was numbered and they had a schematic of the aircraft where the carpet would go. So it's as though every piece of carpet was custom to the aircraft to fit in the specific place where it was supposed to be. I, w I wonder if when they are uh, redoing the interior like that and taking it apart so much, I wonder if they ever find things that they didn't expect to find inside <laughs> all of that. You know, I, I, I asked that question and because, of course, asked how much money they find. And they said that every once in a while they do find money. They will find jewelry. They will find other bits and pieces. And it all has to go into lost and found. And they said that it's a big, um, I guess not security threat, but it's a, a secure procedure that they have to go through. And they said that if anyone takes anything from the aircraft, they can be terminated on the spot. So they take this lost and found of material very, very seriously. I like it. What else do they find inside? Oh, <laughs> oh probably some things that I can't talk about on air. <laughs> Although they had cleaned up at that point, but I saw a photograph that they took of the items that were swept up. And it could fill a, a full-size lawn and leaf bag of just garbage and trash and remaining food bits. And, oh, God only knows what all else that falls, falls between the nooks and crannies of the aircraft. It, it, I was shocked over how much stuff. And that's after they sort of cleaned up and pulled the carpet out. So this is what gets underneath the carpet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, how about the exterior? Were they doing any any painting or anything of that sort uh, on the exterior? This particular aircraft, the paint was really in pristine condition. They do not have a paint shop um, in the area where I was. So that if anything needed to be painted, they would have had to have taken the aircraft um, elsewhere. Uh, as you know, it, with the mist and spray painting, it kind of gets everywhere. So they need a special shop with special um, air evacuation systems and filtration and all that. So that wasn't set up there. Uh, but they were certainly doing inspections of the body. Hmm. And yeah, looking for if there were any cracks in the carbon fiber, if it were struck previously by lightning, making sure that they're doing inspections there. Uh, from the pressurization cycles, looking for any cracks, defects. Uh, and they said they, for the sea check, they go over every inch of the aircraft. Mm, yes. And I wonder how that changes over time. Uh, and what I'm thinking is this, is that the uh, the maintenance procedures are, well, you could view them as sort of an accumulation of experience over the years. Uh, so they do change over time. When we started going with aircraft with carbon fiber fuselages, I mean, that was kind of new territory to a certain mm -hmm. extent. So uh, I, I know you can't answer this, but I'm curious as to uh, how much of the experience accumulated with carbon fiber uh, has changed the, the maintenance procedures. You know, they identify something that they had, had never seen before. And um, I think typically what you do is, you know, you go back to Boeing and say, okay, here's this condition. 
and we don't have an inspection uh, spec for it, you know, w- what should that be? And then Boeing would develop it and it would go into the maintenance manual. But yeah, I'm just wondering how much the, the 787 has uh, seen that kind of you know, progressive changes over, over time. Of course, it's still a fairly young fleet. Um, right. But uh, who is it? The folks at Cutter have had some issues with uh, A350, which is another carbon fiber aircraft. And they just recently solve or resolve the issues that they were having with Airbus over that. So I'm sure that these um, defects, if you will, that Cutter experienced are now part of the Airbus maintenance going forward. I would assume that they that that would all be incorporated in. Yeah, yeah. All right. What else on the trip was uh, memorable? Well, I also got to see a, an evacuation slide inflate and a life vest inflate. And I was surprised to learn that every three years, all the evacuation slides and life rafts need to be uh, checked out. And because LL is now certified to do this for other airlines, they actually had some equipment from Lufthansa in their shop. And fortunately for me, when I was there, I got to watch the evacuation slide uh, get inflated. And that's certainly an experience in five seconds. It has to be fully inflated. Then they check it out, uh, check air pressure, check for leaks, check to make sure that all the bits and pieces are still there. One of the things that I didn't know is there's actually a survival kit that's part of the evacuation slide. Or this particular slide turns into a lifeboat as well. And they have the uh, sun cover that's in the survival kit. They have a bag of uh, phosphor, so they could dump that into the water and it leaves the trail behind so they could be found. They have, uh, they describe sort of like one of those life straws, a filtration system, so you can make salt water drinkable. And so it was just really neat. Uh, and, And of course, there was a first aid kit in there as well. So there's just a bunch of equipment that actually makes sense, but I never knew was inside the slide. Now, when they deployed it, it was still part of the, attached to the airplane, or is this, was it separate, not attached to the airplane? Yeah, this was separate. So they took it out of the aircraft, and they had probably a dozen or so um, slides that were getting ready to be inflated and then repacked and inspected. And yeah, that's, that's what they were doing that day. What's the sound like when that goes off? It's loud. Uh, I, t- I took a video. I'm not sure. Do we have the ability to put video on the... Or I guess if I put it on YouTube, you could yeah. link to it there. Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, yeah, try and get that up online so our listeners can, can view it. It's very, very loud. And it all happens so quickly. The entire slide in this particular case, um, boat as well, a uh, lifeboat, um, inflates in five seconds. It's pretty quick for that volume. Yeah, an object large enough to hold 75 people in fully inflating in five seconds, it's, yeah, it's loud. Yeah, wow. I wonder if it uses similar technology to airbags in automobiles, you know, in terms of generating a lot of gas really quickly. Yeah, I I should have asked. I don't think that it was like life vests that have the CO2 cartridges. Uh, because there were two, I, I was really surprised to see this. There were two metal sort of air filters that I'm not sure if they were for air intake or to enable the deflation of the item, but 
yeah, I really should have asked what they what those things were because it was odd seeing these large metal structures that were were part of the slide. Yeah, interesting. And they were also testing the life vests. Yes, I got to um, put on a life vest and pull the red tabs and watch those inflate as well, or feel, experience it inflate. Uh, yeah, oddly enough, every few years, the life vests all need to be tested. And they had dozens and dozens and dozens of life vests, and every single one needs to be inflated and inspected and then repacked and put back on the aircraft. Hmm. Hopefully, not many of us have ever had the the need to inflate one of those uh, life vests. Yeah, that's why when given the opportunity to to do it, yeah, they said, would you like to try one on and inflate? I'm like, of course I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a silly question. <laughs> so when you did that, um, what was the experience like? Was it kind of like, well, that's about like what you'd expect or or did any aspect of it kind of surprise you? It happened very quickly. So that I was sort of expecting that. What I wasn't expecting is how cold the vest was, right? And uh, I should know this from scuba diving because one of the things uh, every every year when you do maintenance on a scuba tank, you have to do a visual inspection. Therefore, the tank has to be empty. And when you open the valve and let air out, it gets really cold. So it's a change in pressure, but I, uh, yes. I should know this. I should know exactly why. Um, but the large volume of air. That's actually how they liquefy gas. You ever wonder how they make liquid oxygen or any other gas? That's how they make it. They compress it, then release it, and it turns to liquid because of the energy conservation. Yeah, so it, the vest itself was cold. Yeah, interesting. And Yeah, and um, it was it was also a different style. The The way the straps go on, the ones that I've seen in the U.S. or other aircraft, you put the vest over your head and then have the strap that goes around your waist. This had really two arm straps, two loops that you put your arm through. I found it probably more difficult to get on, but it provides a better fit once it's on. Ah. Yeah, and the reason I was asking about you know, the experience is uh, um, it's, it's something that almost everybody that has to use one in an accident. You know, it's the first time they've ever done that. And, you know, if you've done something before, you know what to expect. And, uh, it, you know, it's easier if there are any steps or important instructions or something. Um, and I'm thinking that in a, you know, in a situation like an accident, people are tr doing this thing for the first time. How smoothly does it go? But it sounds like it's basically pretty simple, like you'd think. It's phenomenally simple. The one thing that I also found fascinating about the experience is the guy, when he was telling me or helping me put the vest on and explaining, you know, okay, in a few seconds, you pull on the red tabs. He emphasized, and don't do this inside the aircraft. Wait until you get outside the aircraft. So just like the safety videos, he too was reminding me to do it outside the aircraft. Yeah. Always keep that in mind. Well, Brian, it sounds like a really wonderful experience. Not too many people get to see the inside of a MRO facility like that and enjoy those uh, things. Yeah, and especially, yeah, seeing the aircraft uh, taken apart, being able to walk on the ramp, walk um, you know, above the aircraft, below the aircraft, seeing the 
you know, the, the wheel well where the landing gear goes, seeing where the air conditioner packs are. Um, yeah, it's, that was, that it was such a great experience being able to, to go through that. Very cool. All right. I know you've had some other interesting experiences on that trip and we'll wait till another time for some of those, but anything else on, on this particular aspect? I just want to thank Al. He did so much work in getting everything set up for me and taking me around. He was such a great host, and it was one of these once-in-a-lifetime experiences. And yet again, we proved that we have the best listeners on the planet, and I'm just so grateful that he took the time and two full days out of his life to spend with me and organize so much on this trip. It was um yeah, truly a fantastic experience, and I'm so grateful. Yes, you're right. We do have the best listeners out there. The best, uh, the community uh, of uh, aviation folks is uh, it's amazing. I can't say enough about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look forward to talking with you about some of the other experiences that I had along the way. And who knows, maybe we could get some of these people as guests on the show. That'd be a lot of fun as well. It would. We should try to do that. All right, Brian Coleman. The journey is the reward. Dot org. Org. <laughs> dot org. The journey is the reward dot org, where you can follow Brian and Micah um, co-hosting. Look into Brian's adventures as he's uh, traveling about the world. Um, really, really enjoyable. And I love the dynamics between you and Micah. This works really well. Uh, without Micah, I would have given up on this a long time ago. He is such a good interviewer and keeps me on track. And for the quantity, I should say lack of quantity of time that we put into developing a show plan, he just wings this stuff and does such a good job. And again, I am just amazed at you doing all the editing that you've done over the years in this show. I have no idea how you've done that. I have so much respect for you being able to put this stuff together. It's so difficult and so much harder than I ever expected. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that Micah has uh, yeah, kept the pressure on you to to, to keep going with it because it's uh, it's really it's really delightful. It's a really wonderful podcast. So, thanks for yeah, that. And I have three flights left. Okay, so I'm going to Johannesburg and taking a listener on a safari. Uh, so a listener wanted to to join me on a on a trip, and we're taking a few days going on safari. Then I'm actually taking a vacation and going to Japan. Uh, nephew is running in the Tokyo Marathon, and I still need to connect with Dr. Steph from the airline pilot guy and see if she is running in the marathon because it would be wonderful to that would, to, see, yes. to see her in Japan. Yes. And then I have my final trip to Cape Town, South Africa. And actually, on if all the miles work out properly on the return flight, I will be somewhere over the Atlantic when I cross the three million mile mark. So I only have three flights left. Wow, pretty exciting. Getting close. Yeah. I know. I know. Your life was your life going to get uh, or become much duller after that without all the the trips. You're not going to stop flying. No, I won't stop flying. But I think I'm going to have to find a full time job because this really has been all encompassing <laughs> for the past year. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks, Brian. Have a great day. Brian really had a great time in Israel. We talked about it, I think, on episode 34 and 35 of, uh, of the Journey is Reward podcast. And he, he never expected it to be as much fun as it was. And it, it, he had a great time. 
And it's always great to uh, to meet listeners on trips like that, as uh, you did with uh, Al, which was uh, just wonderful. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Mark Ross-Smith, talking about airline loyalty programs and everything associated with that. Again, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It's been fantastic, guys. Really good show. I, I learned a lot as well. Thanks for having me. And we'll look for you on Travel Data Daily. And uh, we might uh, tootle on over to statusmatch.com as well to check that out. And, of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 740. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob, Mark, anything in closing? Uh no, I, I think I've probably embarrassed myself and uh, enough uh, tonight. And uh, I'm just going to say people can, if you want me, you know where to find me. <laughs> Usually, yes. All right. How about you, David Vanderhoof? Well, I, I'm going to go back after we hang up this. I'm going to go start planning. I, I did a major thing today. I did my first booking on a low-cost carrier. Uh-oh. Which one? Frontier. Believe it or not. So I, I am flying down to Orlando in April to go to Galaxy's Edge at Disney um, with my lovely fiance. It will be a celebration of our birthdays and can't wait to get my nerd on. And, and, um, but it, it will be, it was an interesting experience having never booked on a low cost carrier before. It was um, the a la carte choices were definitely different you know I, I i'm old school i've always flown either united or american or you know or air canada could depending upon where i was going so we'll see what the experience is when i get back i'll have to tell everybody about my experience and and what the tale was of the frontier aircraft i was flying on yeah very good we'll look forward to that and good luck david all right uh micah how about you well, you can find me on Twitter, and the ID there is at MainFly. That's Maine like the state of Maine in the USA, M-A-I-N-E, and fly like David's going to go fly. And MainFly, and I'm also on Mastodon, although I don't check that too often. But, yeah, that's where you can find me. Twitter is still on, right? As yeah, far as I know. It, if you like. I, I, I didn't remember that. Okay. Well, it depends on how you get your Twitter, because if you use uh, many of the... <laughs> that sounds... Pretty it disgusting, does. Max. I, I know. I as the words were coming okay, out. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. What I, what I was going to say, if, uh, it depends on if you uh, use one of the third-party apps that uh, no longer works because uh, they've been shut out of the API. But otherwise, you can still, you can still find Twitter. All right. Well, you can find me at 30,000feet.com, or maybe more accurately, you can find all the places where you can find me at 30,000feet.com. I guess that's kind of meta. So we'll just finish it and say, please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. See you real soon. Keep the blue side up, and thanks for listening. What was it they used to say on the Mickey Mouse Club? 
See you real soon. How do you why? know that's I got it? Because we like you. That's right. M-O-U-S-E. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, we need an Airplane Geeks loyalty program, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, we have our own credit, our own credit card, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark said we can make a ton of money like that. I mean, I, I think we should do it. You need an airline first. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>